in the beginning. <laughs> I thought that'd be clever and it's really not. <laughs> Welcome to the Surviving Paradise podcast, an ex-Jehovah's Witness podcast that we hope lasts a very long time. Where do you jump off with a podcast like this? I can't even begin to tell you that you'll learn with me that everything needs to be transparent, needs to be organic, needs to be natural. So here we are. I've struggled with where to jump off with Surviving Paradise. I've struggled whether I even wanted to jump off with Surviving Paradise. But here we are. I think the time has come. And so... I'm hitting the record button and I'm about to launch into episode one and what I hope is something that really benefits people. If on the low end of the scale, it's in the least bit entertaining, that's fantastic. If it helps people heal or to not feel like they're absolutely batshit crazy after being a Jehovah's Witness, well, that's fantastic too. That's really the purpose behind this. So who am I? Why in the world do you want to spend any amount of time hanging around with me or hanging out with me on the Surviving Paradise podcast. Well, I am the host. My name is Stacy Bauman. I am, at the time of this recording, episode one, I'm a whopping 54 years old. I'm a former five-year ministerial servant, a former 11-year elder, and for the most part, I was raised in Jehovah's Witnesses since the tender age of four. So that's where we'll start. Four years old. My earliest memory for me is in 1972 at my mother's baptism. If anybody out there listening was at Norco in Southern California in 1972, wow, would I love to hear from you. That is surreal. But that's where this whole journey started. My mother, a single mother of three kids and an absentee father, she was contacted, obviously, by Jehovah's Witnesses in the door-to-door work, which is slowly becoming extinct among the the group. The group. That's the nicest thing I'm going to say throughout the course of this podcast. But in 1972, she was contacted. She got baptized, and that's where the journey began. I am the oldest of three kids. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, all of whom are no longer Jehovah's Witnesses at this point. And we'll unpack that journey a little bit, but a little bit more on me. So at four years old, so for the most part raised as a Jehovah's Witness, I grew up in the Bay Area in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. And then my mother moved us under a lot of economic duress. It is incredibly expensive to live in the Bay Area, even in the late 70s and early 80s for a single parent. She moved us to the Pacific Northwest outside Portland, Oregon in 1981. And I bring that up because for me personally, I believe that was probably the most critical move in my life. I really believe it was that move in 1981 that kept me in as a future Jehovah's Witness. I think if we don't move from the Bay Area, the friendships I was developing, my love for sports, my love for journalism, all of those things were really blossoming during that time period. I think if we don't make that move up to the Portland area, I don't think I ever stick with it. Sure, that's hindsight, but the truth is that's really what I believe. I just don't think I ever stick with it. We moved up here because we had family up here. I had cousins, an uncle and an aunt. The uncle himself was an elder at the time, 
And I think that that really prolonged my time period and what I became as a member of Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's a real critical part of my history. Probably will refer to it more times than not throughout this journey. But again, I'm going to be very organic, very transparent about the good, the bad, the ugly, even with me personally on this long road to surviving spiritual paradise as a Jehovah's Witness. So during the teenage years there, I was a fatherless boy. I happened to be a big reader. I really, really took to the student or the studying side of not just school, but specifically since this is the subject, Jehovah's Witnesses. It filled a void for me, particularly when we moved up north. I think that that's common, and I think that that's something that you will see weaves its way through my story and through a lot of my experience as a Jehovah's Witness. But I think that's common, particularly for young boys. And after all, that's the only reference point I have because I am a guy. (laughs) But I was your classic kid that believed it on some level. But I didn't live it. I wasn't this uber strict Jehovah's Witness teenager, particularly prior to being baptized. I believed it. I felt a twinge of guilt when birthday parties were brought up. I didn't know what to say when kids returned from Christmas break about Christmas. But in the meantime, in all the other times, I was playing sports. I was hanging out with worldly kids, as they were referred to then, non-Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was chasing girls. I had the typical crushes as a teenage boy. So I'm going to talk so much more about this because I know that I'm not alone in that piece of this history. And if you were somebody who was raised or lived through being a Jehovah's Witness kid in the late 70s or the early 80s, God, we're going to have some fun because there's going to be a lot of references to that, a lot of references to pop culture, the music, the sports, the fun that was going on during that time period. May even drop a few references to my crush on Jacqueline Smith and that epic award-winning show called Charlie's Angels. Yeah, stay tuned. It's all in there. So I'll expand on this over time. But on the move up to north outside of Portland, Oregon, I was baptized on 5-25-85. Isn't that cute? That's so cute. I was still in high school. I was baptized at the very mature age of 17. And that's only slightly sarcasm as a lot of kids in Jehovah's Witnesses, particularly in the last 20 years, are getting baptized as young as 9, 10, 11 years old, which is sick beyond definition. But at 17, that alone was pathetic. I was nowhere near ready to dedicate my life to a cult at 17 years of age. I didn't even understand the world around me. I didn't understand myself. On some days, I still don't. But at 17, absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, I wasn't living a high moral life of a Jehovah's Witness at 17 either. Again, I would be sure not to attend that birthday party. But when it came to my girlfriend, we were doing plenty of things we weren't supposed to be doing. So I I think that that's such a common story with young Jehovah's Witness kids, particularly during that time period, but I'm sure it's even worse today. As time progressed, I got married at 17. I was married one day after my 19th birthday. Yeah. If you're listening and you grew up as a teenager as a Jehovah's Witness, you know exactly what was going on there. If you want to have a romantic relationship, a sexual relationship, you get married very, very young as a Jehovah's Witness. And I was right there with them. And by the way, I misspoke. It was one day after my 20th birthday. 
So in my mind, I was still basically 19 mentally by one day. Time ticked on. I was appointed as a ministerial servant at 22 years of age and then moved on to being an elder at the ripe, highly experienced, mature age of 27 years old. I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest elder in the circuit at that time. I'd been giving public talks. I'd be going on shepherding calls. I'd been doing all of these things. And by the way, this is old school now as the religion has changed dramatically. We're going to talk about that, obviously. But a lot of these terms might even be newer to those that are newer Jehovah's Witnesses who might be listening. And if you are, that's brave. Nice job. (laughs) But at 27, I was thrust into the role of being a congregation elder. I served as a watchtower conductor for eight years. So I was at the top of the food chain in terms of teaching as the Watchtower study is really the meat or used to be the meat of what Jehovah's Witnesses do in terms of learning. It's where all the new information pops, all the new doctrines, all the new light, (laughs) the new light going to be a whole episode. I was book study conductor for 10 years. I was the secretary at one point. I was a very active speaker on the circuit assemblies as well as at the district conventions. I was even an instructor at Kingdom Ministry School, which is the semi-annual school for elders where they get all the deep, dark secrets from the governing body at that time out of Brooklyn, Bethel, Brooklyn, New York. I was actually utilized and assigned to be a teacher there. And if that doesn't shock you at this young age, by then, 27, 28, 29, 30, this guy was actually on a stage looking out at men much older than him teaching them how to deal with such delicate matters as child abuse, rape, their horrific policies on homosexuality. That was me. I was that guy. So you can say that in some ways, as I take this venture into podcast world, I'm going to be able to give some, I think, rare insights, although much of them are dated At this point, as I've been out almost 12, 13 years, we'll get into that. But just kind of speaking to some of the nuance of this host, I was really a go-to elder. And it took me a long time to kind of swallow that because it sounds so arrogant. But fact remains, I was that guy. I was still young enough to, I guess, be cool to the teenagers. I was approachable. And it took me a long time and lots of therapy to realize that a lot of that was because I genuinely care about people. I'm empathetic. I'm compassionate. I care despite my fiery personality. And I think that made me very approachable. If you're someone who is an XJW or someone who's with an XJW or a JW listening to this right now, you know what I mean. In every congregation, there are those, not every, strike that. In many congregations, there are those that are a little nicer, a little calmer, a little cooler, a little more approachable. I was one of those guys. And I really think looking back that I was really only ever appointed for that reason. The other one being that I was a good speaker. I was a good teacher and I prepared like crazy to give emotionally moving, inspiring talks, having people crying and emotionally engaged at every level when I got up there on stage. I can tell you what wasn't the reason why a guy at 27 was appointed by appointed to be an elder. And it was not by means of magic, 
Jedi Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I'm going to cover that and I'm going to laugh at it a lot. The whole idea that men are appointed by some magical Holy Spirit is unbelievably stupid. And I will shed light on that, as have others that have obviously came before me. On the not-so-great side for me personally, and I am going to expose and lay bare even my own mistakes because I was a young man, and I should. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of or wrong with that. During this time I was an elder, I married the same girl or sister twice. That's my Jerry Springer claim to fame. (laughs) I divorced her the first time after she went out on the marriage, lots of mental health issues. We're not going to go into that. There's no reason to. I remarried her some years later. Uh, During the first marriage, we had a son. I had custody of him. So we were single dad and little guy for a while. You can imagine what that did in the congregation for sisters, the single elder with his adorable young little son. But she came back some years later. We remarried and really leaning into what I believed was the truth, that phrase, that Jehovah would make all this pain go away in the new system. I made the decision to get back together with her and remarry. That, as you might imagine, ended in disaster as all of the problems she was suffering from the first time reared their head again the second time. So, so many stories and insights to share, my own poor decisions, my own thinking and thought processes as to why to do that. All the while at this time, I am an elder in the congregation dealing with everyone else's problems. I was the guy that dealt with all of the other elders' teenagers, mostly their teenage daughters, to be honest. A few of the teenage boys, as most of the guys on our body had girls, daughters, loved them all. Incredible kids, still know some of them that are now women, have families of their own. But it was really during this time period that I began to think and rethink my life course. And granted, I'm an elder at this point. It was witnessing and dealing with and living and consciously advising through so much of the other elders' dirty laundry. I was really the elder the other elders came to whether it was about their alcoholic wives, whether it was about their own struggle with alcoholism, whether it was their relationship with their kids, whether it was inappropriate flirting with the sister they weren't married to, me. By this point, I'm not even 35 years old. And these are the things that I was dealing with as a congregation elder. And I want to say, and in a healthy way after lots of therapy, I dealt with it really well as well as somebody could. But on a personal level, internally, particularly going through that second divorce as an elder and the way I was treated, I began to rethink things. There was a circuit overseer whose name I was going to use here, but I have learned he has since passed away. And I just soon jump over that because it's not important that I became intimately involved with on an advisory level during this time period. He was awful. He was unkind, and he felt that at this point, after the second divorce, which, duh, he thought it was time for me to take a break, to step down. 
I agreed to do that. After I was reluctant as the really the only thing keeping me going at that point was my son and my position as an elder, really feeling like I was making a difference among Jehovah's people. Some weeks later, I get a phone call from what was one of my closest friends in the world, also the presiding overseer in my congregation. He called me at work because he knew I would be emotional, would question him, might even get pissed off. He called me at work in my office to tell me, and I still can't believe it to this day, that they decided they weren't going to let me step down, that they were going to consider this a removal per that circuit overseer. He was my friend. He and the other guys that I had talked to about stepping down, I knew all of their yucky, dirty, yucky secrets. I don't know any other way to say it. I'm going to be transparent. It was one of the most cowardly acts I've ever seen another man do to another man, to call him at work, hoping to not have to confront the fact that they're lying and smearing his name, which is exactly what happened to me. It was gutless. And he made it worse by, after telling me this, while I'm sitting in my office staring at a wall, that they'd really like me to give the concluding prayer right after the announcement at the end of the meeting. <laughs> they knew it was wrong and it was just absolutely insane. You know, I had told people by that point, and again, I'm just going through my bio here, folks. I'm, I had told people at that point that if I had ever been removed as an elder, I will never accept being one again. I knew that about my personality, and I meant it. Almost immediately after this announcement and removal, they wanted to make me an elder again. They started laying the plans for how much time and what I should be doing. They were setting the stage for reappointment. After all, I was running three meetings a week. <laughs> I was running the Watchtower study. I had a book study, and every single week I had a meeting on the service part. Oftentimes, I had to fill in for the theocratic school overseer. Now, all defunct meetings... So if you're listening, you'll have to look all these up, but it kept you very busy. So they were laying the groundwork. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I'll share all sorts of observations and experience from my time as an elder, including my own journey as we make our way through episodes of the Surviving Paradise podcast. So that's just kind of a brief overview Emotionally, for me, I had doubts the entire time in Jehovah's Witnesses from the time I was a kid to an elder. I'm an emotional person for sure, a feeler, but I also have the blessings of a very Germanic father who probably handed down in his DNA the ability to logically assess things. I'm going to share some of those crazy doubts I had from the time I was young. They're literally during different times in my life, I thought I was just absolutely crazy even to think such things because it was in conflict with the governing body, the anointed Jesus brothers. Only to find out many years later, I wasn't crazy at all. And if you're listening right now, you're not crazy. That sound in your gut, that sound in your head, that voice, there's a reason for it. Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, and we'll unpack some of that too. So just speeding this up a little bit, after that three and a half year, or excuse me, after being removed for roughly about three and a half years, I stayed in Jehovah's Witnesses. They put me to work like an elder, even though I didn't have the title. But on a social level, for the first time in my life, I felt young. I felt free. I didn't have the responsibilities that it took to prepare and be at three meetings a week. I didn't have the pressure to do shepherding calls wondering if the kid over in the corner who looks sullen and depressed 
how I can help them. I just didn't have any of those responsibilities anymore. So I basically, for the most part, reverted to being a teenager again. So in my 30s, suddenly single, suddenly not an elder, suddenly not put on a pedestal. I very openly dated lots of sisters, most of them younger than me, which was ridiculous. Looking back, was it a terrible crime? No, but it was silly. And it wasn't too long into that that I realized, God, I'm acting like a a punk kid. But I just had this feeling of being almost adolescent again. I just didn't have the responsibilities I got from the time I was 20 years old up until that point. But something else very interesting happened to me during this time. I had always been preparing and studying for the congregation, as I mentioned. For the first time, I decided to study my faith for me. And I did. I went looking to prove it all over again to myself. I had lived through so much hypocrisy, so many dirty secrets, so many bizarre doctrines and things that I didn't understand. I stood up there for eight years as a watchtower conductor teaching things that I myself deeply questioned on more than one occasion because they were ridiculous. Don't even get me going on the Revelation Climax book, which I'm going to do an entire episode on. Anytime they touch on Revelation, it's a big mistake. (laughs) But that book, which we studied two, I believe three times, I was a book study conductor for that. It got to the point where the group that I was studying with knew that I was being sarcastic. I was laughing. I was laughing at some of the assertions in the Revelation Climax book. So for the first time there, I decided to dig in. And what I found was shocking. There's no other way to say it. And what really hurt, whether it was ego or emotion or whatever you want to put to it, was the fact that all of it was under my nose the entire time. It had always been there. It was in print. It was in documents. It was in landmarks. It was unbelievable. So during this podcast, Surviving Paradise, we're going to explore the bizarre dynamics of cognitive dissonance and how it's constantly working on you and how they're constantly working on you to get you to fall in line with stuff that your brain and your mind and your heart knows don't make any sense. But you need it to, especially since you were probably taught this from the time you were a child. It's deeply damaging deeply damaging. So again, I dug in and I was looking at all of this stuff. I went to Brooklyn Bethel multiple times. I went to the United Nations. Oh boy. I examined official court document documents, excuse me, including last will and testaments of some of the former Watchtower presidents. I went to grave sites. I got on airplanes and went to former Jehovah's Witness landmarks. I had always been a good student. I had read the Bible multiple times. I had read a great deal of the literature. I crafted emotional, heart-rending talks. I took teaching very seriously. But after this journey, I felt like I was in a new religion. And again, it was all right under my nose the entire time. Just weeks ago, the governing body, the folks that run Jehovah's Witnesses, Christ Brothers, 
apparently commissioned for Charles Taze Russell's gravesite to be torn down. Well, fortunately for me, I actually got to go to it. I got on an airplane, flew there, stood, touched it. And I can tell you, honestly, it is one of the biggest memories of my life because I've never laughed so hard that I was almost throwing up. To lean against a pyramid with an all-seeing eye on the top of it, just yards from a Masonic temple, and a couple feet from another gravestone claiming he was the Laodicean messenger of Revelation, but to physically see it and to touch it, I've never laughed so hard in my life. Never laughed so hard in my life. They just recently tore it down in September of 2021 because it had become almost a mecca for XJWs to be able to go and see it and to think, holy shit, what have I been a part of my entire life? It was an uncanny experience. And for me, those three and a half years after being removed as an elder to stick around the religion, I bounced around. I even changed congregations. I'd been in basically one congregation my whole life. I wanted to see if they all worked the same. I suddenly realized I didn't know. I'd been an elder. I'd been used on committees. I'd bounced around. I didn't really know this stuff. I think one of the greatest memories, and I'll share it down the road too, is when I walked into an investigative meeting, an investigative meeting for a judicial committee, and I looked at the elders, and not any of them even had a Bible in the room. But they were going to tell us how Jehovah and Jesus wanted us to live our lives. It was insane. I'm sure they remembered me after that meeting. So I left Jehovah's Witnesses for good in February of 2009. There wasn't any big catalyst other than at the end of that three and a half years, I was basically on the periphery. I'd go to a meeting here and there. I was dating some Jehovah's Witness sisters, uh, all of which came to an end almost immediately. I was essentially on a business trip in Orlando and I got an email from the wife of a brother God, those terms are stupid. A brother I had been friends with for several years, complaining about some congregation drama. I'm sitting there trying to counsel her, realizing I'm not an elder. Why the hell is she, why the hell is he and his wife contacting me about this? So after years of hardcore study, after years of traveling, after seeing the monuments, after looking at the SEC stock documents from Wall Street, after looking at last wills and... It hit me. It's time to go. I often look back on that day in Orlando in that condo and wonder if he and his wife, just kind of peripheral friends over the years, have any idea of the impact they had on my life. It was really their ridiculous drama that just kind of had me lay back in a chair and think, what am I doing here? So in February of 2009, I left Jehovah's Witnesses. I was not shy about it. I was fairly well known, obviously, in this region of the country, this region, this city, after being an elder for many years, well over a decade. And I wasn't shy about it. I'm leaving. Don't follow me. If you do follow me, I'm going to make life a living hell for whoever follows me. Never heard from a person again. No one. Believe me, that too had its impact and made me realize that despite the endless claims that Jesus left all of his sheep to search for the one that had strayed. None of these elders, none of these lifelong friends, none of these people ever came looking for me. 
never even placed a phone call. None of them. All the hours and years and nights I was out with their kids, sometimes I fed their kids. They didn't have any money. Some of them were dealing with drugs, getting them out of that situation. With one elder going in the middle of the night to find his daughter in a man's apartment and keeping him out of jail. None of those people ever contacted me. (laughs) I say it with a smile so that you know, yeah, you go to therapy, you work through some of this stuff, you realize it was all a lie. And then when you get out of it, it's so peaceful and it feels good. And therein lies a lot of the reason why the jumping off point for Surviving Paradise, the podcast, is happening. A lot of people ask me, why now? Like you have been out, Stacy, for 12, 13 years. I've been gone for a long time and the last 12 years have been the best of my life. Absolutely enjoyed it. Great people, great experiences, great therapy. Just an unbelievable blessed time in my life. Why, when things are going so well and you've had so much happiness, would you decide to jump back into this? I'll tell you, it wasn't something that was easy for me. It, it, I don't want to say it was really that hard, but to just think about talking about it wasn't like, oh yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I, I resisted. I was like, why? I don't care. This isn't a part of my life anymore. One of the things I've learned in therapy, and maybe it's my personality, I admit that, is that I'll always probably have some sort of warped fascination with the whole thing, with Jehovah's Witnesses. Just two days ago, I got my brand new copy of the 2022 Elder's Handbook. (laughs) Yep, they're still updating and sending those out to the fellas. (laughs) I got mine. I haven't even looked through it. I perused it, laughed. It's good to see that elders now, they're promoting that they should be appointed as early as their early 20s. My God. My God. But they are. But I watch it. I watch it from afar. I watch it on the periphery. I do have a almost strange fascination with what they're doing now. I think I always will. And when people try to understand that, I say, you probably never will. In a lot of ways, maybe I don't even understand it. But the closest illustration I can use, will I get a good on this in the theocratic school? (laughs) The closest illustration I can use is for me, it's a lot like how people probably feel watching reality television. I think that's, I hate those shows, don't watch them, but I think that's probably the same dynamic. It's like reality television for me. And so in some sick sort of way, I watch it still from afar. It's not often. It doesn't dominate my life. It's every so often. Uh, People still reach out to me. I still get the news from the inside. Not going to talk more about that than the obvious fact that there are people at Bethel and Wallkill now and everything that are not really buying into the program. And they are more than happy to feed information outside the organization. And for me, I think that I'll always have an interesting fascination with it. Uh, much like people do with reality TV. So there have been many times, you know, in deciding to do this now after so many years that I really contemplated whether it was even smart. As, As a Jehovah's Witness, I always marveled, and this is from the time I was a kid, going to district conventions at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, to Memorial Coliseum in Portland, the Tacoma Dome in Washington, 
you see the apostates. Oh my God, the wicked apostates who just quoted the Bible half the time, who would picket outside the district conventions. Of course, we'd protect our children and we'd say, don't go over there and don't look at their pickets and their signs. But I would sit there from the time I was a kid to the time I got baptized to the time I was an elder and nothing changed. I'd marvel at them. And I really do have come to learn this is more of a personality thing. Uh, screaming and wasting their entire day out there picketing a convention of a bunch of people who claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses, most of which couldn't explain one doctrine. They've just been raised in it. They raise their hand at meetings and they keep showing up to the meetings. They don't know anything about it. Even people I love dearly don't know anything about it. But I'd look at them, these apostates, and I thought, why the hell would anyone do that? It's literally like standing in the street in front of your neighbor's house across the street and screaming at them how stupid they are for believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Think about it. Like, why would you go spend a day doing this, picketing in front of a bunch of people that want to believe a bunch of nonsense or a fairy tale? So I never really saw myself doing this. I never saw myself doing a podcast or writing a book. I wrote a brief ebook that was more cathartic right when I left that uh, I still have floating around. Uh, that's fun. Most of it is dated because the religion's barely recognizable 10 years later. But I never really saw myself being an activist. And I want to be really forthright with this. I am not an activist. I don't even like that term. It sounds like I'm dedicating a bunch of time to this. I am not. I'm not. So it comes back to that question. Why now? Why are you doing this? What's the purpose of this podcast? What are we going to talk about? I'm going to narrow it down to two things. One of them I think is probably obvious to most people to get involved in speaking out against this cult. The other is probably, well, not probably, it's more personal. It's more personal because you are shunned when you leave this this faith, so to speak. My number one reason is a simple one. It's kids. It's children. I've been pretty open that I went to therapy. I still believe in it. Absolutely love therapy. I think it's fantastic. Mental health is a real thing. Stick with it. Don't minimize it. Don't allow them to minimize it. But when it comes to children, I don't think there's anything more precious on the earth. I love them. I love kids. I want to protect them. I don't want a brand new mind to be turned to mush by this evil cult. I want to protect them, not just from the heinous assaults, the danger of pedophilia or sexual abuse within Jehovah's Witnesses that is well documented at this point, but I want to protect them from just basic brain damage. What happens in Jehovah's Witnesses to children who are thrust into this as minors who are powerless is abuse. Make no mistake about it. It's abuse. When I saw the member of the governing body take the stand at the Australian Commission and sit there on the stand and lie, just openly lie, I knew then and there something flipped in me. It was still years ago before I came to this point, but it really, really lit a fire in me to do what I can to help kids. And I don't care if it's kids, plural, or it's one. 
I don't want anyone to be exposed at a young age to this crap because physical abuse is a lifetime. So is mental abuse. Your views on people, people who don't share your faith, people who are gay, people who are from a different race, people who live in a different part of the world, other religions, everything is deeply, deeply damaged inside of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if you're a JW listening to this, you're going, oh, come on, man. I deeply and strongly, excuse me, strongly suggest that you look into the history of this quote-unquote religion in print, not opinions. It's incredibly damaging to kids. And if there's anything I can do while on this planet to help children, I will. Reason number one. Reason number two, more personal. Uh, Last year during the pandemic, I learned quite by accident that two couples, particularly the guys, the men who were teenage friends of mine, grew up as Jehovah's Witnesses together, getting drunk, chasing sisters. Um, Then we straightened out and became good brothers. Two of these couples who I really do love, I really do love, and I think are really good people, though like all of us troubled in some areas, decided to finally shun me after being out 10, 12 years. They kind of, st- one of them who was my one of my dearest friends of my life uh, was in contact and then started to peter out and then uh, suddenly I was shunned. And I learned about it on social media, which I hate and I'm rarely on, but that's how I accidentally learned about it. Um, and it explained why no phone calls were taken, no texts returned. And I realized, ah, I've been shunned. And at that point, not only did I deal with how cowardly and pathetic this was on their part to not pick up the phone and at least say goodbye, they would have gotten nothing but a wonderful conversation. Me telling them I love them. I understood. Good luck. Always here if you need me. They didn't have the balls to do it. They didn't have the balls to do it. It's that simple. They're cowards. And I don't care if they ever hear this. I doubt they ever will. But if they did, it was cowardly. That's not how you treat people you've known for almost 40 years. So that move started in something in me that you expect I'd be angry. You'd expect I'd be hurt. I think there was disappointment. I was disappointed, but I wasn't shocked by any stretch of the imagination, particularly knowing the personalities and that I didn't feel like they were very strong personalities when they needed to stand up for something. I'll leave it at that. But the fact that they didn't call and say goodbye really started something in me I didn't expect. And again, it wasn't bitterness. It wasn't anger. I felt unusually free. I don't know if anyone out there listening could even understand that, but I felt free. I felt like for the first time, I don't need to be careful about what I say around them. I don't need to try to make sure their feelings don't get hurt if I disagree with what they're doing. I didn't have to do that anymore. And for the first time, it felt really good. And I didn't expect that feeling. So there was disappointment, but there was mostly the feeling of I'm free. Enough of this nonsense. So between kids and the damage being done to them, and finally not having to worry about people that I love the way I did, that they didn't, (laughs) that they didn't clearly, it was time for me to do something. My little small part in this battle against a cult that I believe 
really deeply harms people. And I don't just believe it. I know it. I still deal with the repercussions and the things I say in my relationships now, my romantic relationship, my my relationship with my son and with stepkids and all this other stuff that you really begin to realize, my God, some of the stuff you say and do is colored by that entire time period. And so I want to exercise those demons, so to speak. And I wanted to put together a podcast that would allow us to do that. Briefly, there is so much good content out there about Jehovah's Witnesses, the dangers of them, and those that have survived, healed, and made a better life for themselves. I don't need to list the names. I don't need to list the people. You can Google and find all kinds of men and women that have done amazing things after this. I just felt like any situation, there was space for something different. I want to laugh a little bit more (laughs) on this podcast. There's going to be times in Surviving Paradise that we get into serious topics. You can't get away from the bizarre and surreal doctrines and stupidity of Jehovah's Witnesses. You can't. It's there in print, by the way, all of it, from tinfoil will kill you and is demonic to don't get your tonsils out, kill yourself with a knife. That's a direct quote, folks. That's a direct quote from a golden age. If you're a JW listening, go find it. They've gone out of their way to bury everything. They're taking their books off the bookshelf in Kingdom Halls. They're taking books out of print, including the creation book, they called it, which was filled with quotes from an occult leader (laughs) and erroneous texts regarding evolution. Just insane stuff. They're going out of their way to bury this. Somebody has to make sure that people know how this thing started. They got to know. If you are familiar with, with the mansion, uh, Beth Sarim in San Diego, which they had to kind of sort of admit to in a couple of sentences in the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, another book out of print. But I bet you don't know about Beth Shan. Yeah, Beth Shan, a whole nother property nearby. We're going to talk about that down the road. Just a little bit of the teaser piece. So why do this, folks? This is it. There's a place for this. There's a place for people to come and talk all walks of life, all sexualities, all races, all people that have been harmed by this horrific cult, whether they were a child, an adult, someone that was married or a relationship with someone that was a witness, someone who is enduring the hideous and evil shunning policies. That's what surviving paradise is about. You go through your life as a Jehovah's Witness and they talk so much about the spiritual paradise. It's the biggest bunch of bullshit you'll ever be exposed to until you begin to realize how the whole thing started and who's running it. (laughs) So we're going to create a safe place. I got commitment issues, so to speak. I want to do this every week. I'm hopefully going to commit to doing that. I'm going to fly solo sometimes. I'm going to have on some guests, people that I love and respect that are also outside of Jehovah's Witnesses, but who may have been raised in it or were part of it at one time. We're going to unpack ideas, new teachings. We're going to laugh at so, so many things because it is such a good way to heal from this stuff. We're going to look at Caleb and Sophia videos and the grotesque subliminal propaganda that they're pushing on children. We're really going to do it all. 
here at Surviving Paradise. So, no, if you are a Jehovah's Witness that is listening, you're brave. I have a lot of respect for you. If you're an ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who found this and decided to listen in, thank you. Really appreciate it. We're not trying to accomplish anything else but to help other people in our own small way. So, as we close episode one, there's a little bit on me. There's a whole bunch of teasers. This is what's coming. We're going to laugh, probably have a few cries, but one thing we're going to do is heal. And we can do it together, even if it's digital format in a podcast. So join us every week as we look to unpack what it was like to survive paradise as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll see you next week.